Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then we're up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise and informative update. It's Friday, the 9th of February. Coming up, a state of the nation or a political stump speech. Business can't be too happy. There was little mention of partnership. The impact of lifting tariffs on imported chickens. Do we demonize coal too much? And is ethical business communication possible these days? Well, not unexpectedly, not surprisingly, it was a night full of State of the Nation promises, many that we have heard before. And the consensus, at least among opposition parties, was that President Ramaphosa is living in a dream world. Cyril in Wonderland was one phrase that was used. So let's try and separate fantasy from reality as we start the program on this Friday. Political commentator Sanusha Naidu, a very warm welcome to you. A lot of time was spent on past achievements over 30 years. Did the president have his head in the sand? Good afternoon, Jeremy, and good afternoon to the listeners. And I think he had his head buried in the sand, not even in the sand. Um, and I think, you know, to a large extent, the, the speech was flat. Um, the expectations that people had that this would be a very kind of low-keyed, un- unimaginative speech came out uh, in the delivery as well. And there wasn't much there to, to really feel that there's been an improvement in the last five years around the state of the nation and the body politic of the state. I mean, the the, the, the president drew on very broad statements, uh, broad platitudes. So he acknowledges that there's been uh, socioeconomic difficulties, that the structural landscape of the country has not been um, you know, an opportune moment for people to improve their lives. But then he comes up with that with that whole democratic child, poster child story that weaves a narrative, uh, Tinsualo. And suddenly everybody like stands up and says, well, there's one Tinsualo, but remember Tinsualo's mother, grandmother, aunts, uh, Tinsualo grew up in a, in a, in a, in a situation where her, her circumstances were not that great. And where is she today? And what's her future for her children going to be like? So, there's this kind of interesting way in which he tried to create this idea of delivery over the last 30 years, but delivery in a sense where there wasn't much meat to the the figures. There wasn't much uh, breaking down, disaggregating the the statements. It was things like the economy has grown three times bigger. Um, yeah, that we've lifted millions out of poverty. We've uh, essentially provided these grants. There was nothing that you could actually tear apart and say, point with mm. decisiveness. 
that this is what we did. Sanusha, given that in many respects uh, the president and his party have run out of runway, there was very little that he could have said, though. Said though, what 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 might he have done to uh, offer a little bit more meat on the bone, as you say, a little more inspiration? And I and I take the point about you know the metaphor of the runway, but I think what what he hasn't learned is that in the five years that he's been the president and 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 he's been doing the state of the nation addresses the one thing that they haven't done is they haven't he hasn't learned that making more promises doesn't necessarily address the problem it doesn't necessarily make the the situation better nor does it address the issues that the situation has become more dire more terse than before and i think that's the problem what is with with with, with the kind of um architecture and the kind of context that the, that, that the president was trying to deliver last night. Because a lot, uh, from what I could read, I could see that there's been uh, some very important lifting from the five-year review document that was released about two or three days before the State of the Nation address, the delivery of the January 8th statement, where you, you, you're kind of trying to project that at the one level, it was a very difficult circumstances to come into as a, as a, a, a inherited from the apartheid state. But then he also circles back to the fact that when he came into power, he had to deal with state capture. And at the end of his speech, he says this is about renewal, rebuilding and um, revitalizing the economy and, and, and uh, bringing back a kind of confidence to institutions. Well, yes, Mr. President. You were part of that for uh, the, 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 the last nine year, the last part of the nine wasted years. And if your role was to rebuild that, you're not seeing it happen in, 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 mm. in, in reality. The point that I'm trying to make is that when you make a speech like this, you must be able to say, I, I can actually connect with people on the ground. And will this speech find resonance? Sanusha, we did get some detail on the much-contested National Health Insurance Bill, and this is what he said. We plan to incrementally implement NHI, dealing with issues like health system financing, the health workforce, medical products, vaccines, technologies, and health information systems. We hadn't heard that before. No, we didn't. I mean, from, from, from what we could gather, we heard a lot about an overall, an overarching NHI bill that was basically, um, what did he say, sitting on his desk and he's looking for a pen. Um, but the point is that the, 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 the context of the NHI is really the detail, the structure. And, and what he said yesterday about the technologies and the infrastructure and the services that will be linked to the NHI is critical. But so too is the critical part of finding the money for this NHI. And if finding the money for the NHI is going to be one of those key drivers to really give basic qualitative access to, to, to universal public health at the national level for all people, then you've got to make sure that the, 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 the money that comes through is not money that's taken away from other social uh, spending or money that essentially creates an added burden to the state coffers. And that's a big challenge because at the moment we're sitting at a 6% budget deficit.
And once your budget deficit starts to get to unimaginable levels, 8 and 10%, your borrowing becomes that much harder. Your investment confidence becomes that much harder to project. And so the problem with the, with the NHI is that I don't think any one of us uh, in, 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 in South Africa disputes the NHI in terms of its nobility, in terms of the fact that it's an important access to, to, to health care that every South African has the right to because it's entrenched in the Constitution. But what is problematic is when you throw the NHI out as this kind of populist kind of legislation and you say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, but you haven't provided the detail, the how. Mm. Sanush and I do. Uh, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for the crisp analysis. And uh, we will, if time permits, return to the State of the Nation in just a moment. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. In the meantime, though, let's talk about poultry. You'll be aware the International Trade Administration Commission has confirmed that it's lifting punitive tariffs on imported chicken. The decision was made in response to the impacts of the highly pathogenic avian influenza HPAI, also known as bird flu, which I don't need to tell you has ravaged both global and local poultry supplies. With us now is Ayabonga Kawe, who is the ITAC Chief Commissioner, a very warm welcome to you. And just a little bit of context first, can you elaborate for me on the decision-making process that you went through? I think the starting point is is for members of the public to understand the nature of the work we do. Uh, The bulk of our work, yes, some of it done by our own initiative, but the bulk of it really comes from policy statements and policy directives that come from the executive arm of government. And in this instance, in line with Section 16 of, of the International Trade Administration Act, the Minister of Trade, Industry and Competition uh, directed ITAC to consider a temporary rebate on different categories of poultry products. Now, this followed the culling of millions of chickens and, of course, the announcement of HPI avian flu outbreak by the Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development. And we've already seen, certainly since that outbreak was announced, in the second half of last year, millions of uh, chickens culled uh, across the entire value chain mm. from breeders to layers. And so this really, I guess, was a directive that uh, tried to preempt uh, what uh, many would have anticipated, plausibly so, would be a shortage in poultry products, which would affect poor working class households for whom uh, poultry is the main protein staple. So really, that was the motivation behind this. We were given a directive to investigate it. And in that process, uh, would have given an opportunity to many players, including the importers, the wholesalers, uh, domestic poultry producers, and of course, organs of state, such as the National Agricultural Marketing Council and the Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development. Now, we then, uh, towards the latter part of last year and the early parts of this year, then made a recommendation to the Minister of Trade, Industry and Competition and subsequently to the Minister of Finance for a consideration of such a temporary rebate, which would be informed by the assessment of the outbreak by the line ministry, which is the Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development. So it's quite bizarre that there are certain comments in the public which, um, I guess, aim to suggest that this is a decision that was a foolhardy one that was taken without any engagement with the submissions that different stakeholders would have made. Um, And we remain guided in this process by the outbreak, which um, certainly from many of the suggestions by Delrod is very much still with us. 
Are you able to then give me a sense materially as to how this is going to affect the price of chicken, both in the short and the long term? Have you done those numbers? Well, so I think maybe two things, uh, Jeremy, which would be of assistance in this case. Uh, ordinarily, uh, the expectation is that this would ease not just the volume shortage, so the availability of poultry, but also that it would have a softening effect on the price increases um, in the food basket of many poor households that we continue to observe. Now, in line with that, there are certain other factors that would inform whether or not the lower prices that would be found at the ports for containers bringing in poultry products would translate into lower prices for consumers when they get to the shelves. A big part of that has to do with whether or not the importer, wholesaler, retailer kind of relay ensures that um, there isn't really, I guess, a passing on to consumers of unreasonable markups. And that's why in the recommendation that we made to the minister, we requested that he also consider certain other instruments that he has at his disposal in order to monitor whether or not these prices will be passed through. And in instances where that doesn't happen, uh, I guess, uh, correspondingly uh, respond. So, So I think preemptively, it wouldn't make sense to run those numbers because you would have to make all manner of assumptions about whether or not the people at the port who pass it on to the wholesalers, then the wholesalers pass on that price reprieve down to the retailers, who then, of course, would pass it on to the consumers. Could, could we uh, so talk, many could we other talk things then could a, potentially happen in that chain. Fair enough. So are there other measures then as a result of what you've just told me that ITAC could consider to mitigate the impacts of bird flu and other external factors on increasing food prices? So, Jeremy, I mean, what we have in our toolbox is the um, investigative capability. And in this instance, we've undertaken an investigation that has allowed us to compute, uh, I guess, the, um, you know, shortages we would anticipate in the South African market for 2024, which would inform the volume of uh, the quota of uh, poultry allowed to come in. And I would encourage members of the public to really read that report. It's publicly available on the ITAC website. Um, so, so that's what we have in our toolbox. But as you would imagine, other organs of state also have other tools that they can then summon. Um, and in this instance, I, I think we flagged the price monitoring uh, tools that I guess might be accessible to the uh, department. But in addition to that, I think part of responding to this outbreak is really to ensure within our veterinary services, uh, which would rest with Dalrat and even Uh, the prospect of vaccination here in order to deal with this outbreak. Mm. It's not the first we've experienced and certainly won't be the last, uh, Jeremy. And I think it does require a coordinated intergovernmental response. Uh, We just have the toolkit insofar as the trade instruments are concerned. Um, But I think there are many other organs of state uh, who, in responding to this, would be able to do so. And I think it's encouraging that the domestic industry has also come to the party in, in suggesting all manner of contingency measures that they have taken and continue to take. And really, I guess, signaling an all-of-society approach insofar as this is concerned. I'll just need a quick answer to this one. The concern, of course, would be that the benefits of the rebate are passed on to the consumers. But that Mm. would be outside your scale or outside your remit. Am I right? Indeed, it would be. And that's why I'm saying Mm. that there are two pieces of legislation, one being the Consumer Protection Act and the other being the Competition Mm. Act which allow the executive authority in this instance the ability to intervene, one, to monitor prices and where there are unconscionable and unreasonable prices on the back of this reprieve uh, to intervene accordingly. And those pieces of legislation would deal with that. And I think we flagged that in our recommendation. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining me. You're listening to Web at Midday. 
All right, let's return now to our coverage of last night's State of the Nation. And much of the speech was about the economy and obviously would have been watched closely by the business community from Business Unity South Africa. Kas Kavadia, a very warm welcome to you. Your organization put a statement out before the address calling for proposals to welcome the private sector to participate in addressing crises facing the country, particularly energy and logistics. No significant announcements made in this regard last night. No doubt you'll be disappointed. Well, Jeremy, I think what the president essentially did was to try and demonstrate that the country is in a better place now than it was pre-1994. And, and of course, it's in a better place now. It had better be, given that pre-1994 was an apartheid government, and since then, for the last 30 years, a democratic government. But I think that what we would have wanted to see more is that the progress he was talking about has actually happened in the last year or so. Uh, from the time the government actually agreed to, in a structured way, partner with the private sector to, one, uh, have some critical intervention in critical areas of delivery, and to also, in that process, build government's capacity to actually do what they need to do. And what we would have expected for the president to say that's working and that's the sort of recipe we must use going forward. And and he didn't really say that. And and I think that also the interventions he's talking about and the successes he's talking about in many instances we don't see that in the lived experience of many people in this country. And so the inputs we have, the uh, uh, resources we expend, the capacity we expend, has got to result in a change in the lived experience of people. Otherwise, we're doing something wrong. And that is leading to increased frustration, not only among ordinary South Africans, but I imagine the business community itself. Absolutely, because because what what that leads to is that we we're not consistently sending out the messages and acting in a way in constant that tells investors we are on a path and a consistent and sustained path that would actually uh, get us to create the environment for investment and put us on to a sustained growth and development uh, path. Kas Kuvadia, listening to the speech last night, uh, NHI is now a fait accompli. It comes at a huge price tag. Uh, over and over again, business and healthcare bodies have warned that implementing the system is going to knock investment confidence and as a result, and also result in uh, an exodus of uh, doctors from the country. Uh, you would be increasingly concerned about that. Yeah, well, Jeremy, we're hoping it's not a fait accompli. He hasn't signed it yet, and we would urge the president not to sign it until he has gone through processes he needs to go through in his office when a bill he's referred to his office for signing. Those processes include getting his office to look at whether the consultation processes, the parliamentary and NCOP processes were thorough. We believe certainly at the NCOP they weren't because the NCOP didn't engage us on all right, uh, Kas Kavadia from Business Unity South Africa. I think we have the gist of what you had to say, and uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. 
Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, apart from protestations that load shedding was coming to an end, there was little new in the state of the nation about uh, energy. Interesting to see as well that as he was making that remark, the president, uh, ESCOM, moved us once again to stage four load shedding. But always looming in the background of this debate is our reliance on coal, even though there is a stated commitment to more green energy. And someone who writes and commentates extensively on this issue is Hugo Kruger, who's an energy commentator. He joins me now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And you make the argument that uh, in spite of all the criticism, coal, at least in the medium term, still has a vital role to play. Well, if you look at coal from a historical perspective and even from an actual, from today's perspective, coal's um, absolute volumes uh, globally is continuing to, to increase. It's not decreasing. It's particularly increasing in developing countries. And I take the view that South Africa's particular, I said business elite and media and in the article I wrote, have totally lost track of where we are as a developing country. If you go to Southeast Asia and all those countries, Vietnam in particular, who's had the fastest GDP growth in the last 10, 20 years, they're all expanding coal. Yes, they are adding renewables in addition to that, but they are undoubtedly still committing to coal. And I believe that there are coal technologies that you can commit to. And we should not lose sight. South Africa is the most coal-dependent country in the world with up to 80% of our energy and electricity demand from coal, one-third of the petrol. Mm. I mean, it's just so many statistics that make us reliant, reliant on coal. And I would say it's callous and dangerous to not invest into coal, at least for the next 20 years. Tell me why it's dangerous. Well, if you look at the history of economic growth, the biggest enabler of economic growth, there's two of them actually, is water and electricity. Okay, for obvious reasons, water and electricity, um, you know, you can look at the second law of thermodynamics. Everything we do in the economy is energy being dispatched, right? Now, if you're going to replace coal, which I have to repeat, it's 80% of our primary um, energy system, you need to come with an alternative that we can build at that rapid rate. And at the same time, not put our own populations, in Mpumalanga in particular, under population space, stress and displacement. Uh, we saw the political backlash from the ANC and the DA, the DA mayor in Pretoria, the Green Party, if you will, is opening up a coal power station. Um, Gwedi Mantashi is a former coal miner. The minister, um, Sputler, I've, I've always struggle to pronounce his, his surname, um, he tried to recommit to Green after you know the ANC brought him in, and then the union's backlash. And this is a common phenomenon that you see in the energy sector, that there is an internal geopolitical reality. So my view is to maintain the peace and the electrical stability. Let's just maintain the coal fleet for 20 more years. And we add addition to that renewables and nuclear and whatever your preference might be. And then when we have sufficient alternatives, that's when we walk away from it. Hugo Kruger, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, you're suggesting to me that the debate is not necessarily about the use of coal, but perhaps the type of technology uh, that goes into using it and enabling it. The problem, of course, is that we're not getting to grips with that side of the equation, that we're not investing enough in that technology. And that seems to be where the break is. 
That's right. Look, um, there's also a debate uh, about renewables, just to hamper on them. When you expand renewables on, on mass, given that batteries are still expensive, now they might, the equation might change in 10 or 20 years from now, we don't know. Um, we need dispatchable energy in case there's a massive cloud over South Africa where the wind drops. And we saw in Alberta this year, there was a massive freeze. Alberta relied on natural gas, Texas on gas and coal and nuclear. Okay, And the and even in France with nuclear, when we did our, maintain our nuclear fleet, because I, well, I studied in France, the monastery, mm -hmm. they brought on the coal power stations Okay, as is dispatchable. So the first point is coal is the backbone of any reliable grid, whether we like it or not. The second one, in terms of the technology, yes, there are cleaner technologies. And then the third point I want to make, if you take an entire life cycle analysis, then imported natural gas has higher CO2 emissions than surface mine coal. That's not being communicated. So coal under some conditions can be equivalent to natural gas, on average less or more, but it's hovering on the same one. So to choose natural gas over coal is a dishonest way of framing the debate. It's the type of coal and the type of gas that you're burning. I'm sensing this entire debate is about the optics, and I would also suggest to you, and I'd be no. interested in your reply, that uh, the green or the renewable lobby is winning this debate. Um, yes and no. I, I, I do sense a political backlash. I mean, when I did my, well, after my master's in France, I worked here at, at ITER, International Thermonuclear Reactor, and uh, Emmanuel Macron, for example, increased the price on diesel. By a few cents, and he didn't know it. And there was a backlash, the Gilets Jaunes riots, which was quite famous. And we're seeing it across the European Union, the farmer protests. We're seeing many groundswell movements. Um, you know, people have accused them of misinformation, etc., saying that, look, the green stuff that you're promoting, you're either pushing it too far, maybe it's the populations being resistant to new technology, that's a mm -hmm. common thing with humans, or it might be that they are not as affordable as people think. And I personally am in the latter camp. I'm not making an absolute statement on that because solar in South Africa has got incredible uh, you know, potential, for example. But we're seeing offshore wind, in particular in the European Union, the audited accounts pre uh, contradicting what was made on the spreadsheets. Now, I'm saying the Europeans can take that risk with the energy system. South Africa, given that we have load shedding, Okay, should not make an either or solution every year. And there are factions within the energy sector. There's about eight major energy sources. It's a massive amount of value capitalization every year, lots of cap uh, capital expenditure, and everyone wants his piece of the pie. And I'm saying the ideal policy of South African principle must be a mixed energy system. And I'm saying let's just maintain the coffee. Please, I don't want them to do Pinkasili, so don't. You know, don't go and quote me on that. But I'm saying maintain the core fleet, add the additions to it, and then bring them all into compromise with each other. Because if we're going to fight each other in the, in the energy system, we're going to end up with no energy. And I believe that's what's happened to South Africa in the last five years. All right, Hugo Kruger, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. And let's finish the program with this. As communications professionals navigate the complex interplay between transparency, accountability and the influence of digital media, questions about moral obligation of the sector are more permanent than ever. And against this backdrop, the South African sector is facing unique challenges, prompting a re-evaluation of ethical standards and practices. More now from Rakhine LaRue from the agency Reputation Matters. Uh, Rakhine, welcome to you. Why is the industry questioning itself in this respect? Hi, Jeremy. It's not. It's looking at understanding 
how is ethics and perceived across not just South Africa, but the rest of the continent as well? So we are looking at getting the, the standards in place so that we can conduct more business, not just with each other, but across the continent as well. So we, um, as Reputation Matters, are working very closely with the African Public Relations Association, APRA, and the Public Relations Communications Association, the PRCA, to call on PR professionals and to get their insights and perceptions on ethics and the PR landscape within South Africa, but also the rest of Africa as well. Are you suggesting then that the line between ethical persuasion on the one side and manipulation in the crafting of public messages is getting a little bit more blurry, particularly because of uh, the influence of artificial intelligence? It, there is definitely that role of of the the impact that artificial intelligence has, but I also think it is the responsibility of PR professionals to be ethical in terms of the messaging that gets shared. So it's AI definitely plays a massive role, but I think what is also key within the industry is the sharing of fake news. So that that, that was an issue even before um, anything like AI came to, to the fore. And it's, it's having that ethical standard um, where PR professionals, communicators have to have their client's best interest, transparency, authenticity um, at the heart of all of this in terms of spreading messages, spreading news and, and getting communication out there. And do you think it's becoming more difficult then to balance the need for transparency, as you've just mentioned, with the obligation to protect confidentiality. That is, it is all very much interlinked in terms of the the transparency, the confidentiality, and that's also why you, you need the expertise in this area of how do you sensitively manage communication, especially sensitive information, especially also during a crisis, what can and can't and how best to manage various scenarios that's that's for the best interest of all the different stakeholders, your clients, the publics at at large. So there's a a, a big role that that needs to be played and fulfilled in that area. I'm going to leave it there. Rochine LaRue, thank you very much indeed. And uh, just a reminder, on our daily online poll yesterday, We ask this question, how do you evaluate the impact of the government's efforts to improve the lives of South Africans? We gave you three options, significantly improved, somewhat improved, or no improvement at all. And no real surprise here, well over 90% saying there has been no improvement at all. And up right now is our daily poll for this Friday. And very simply, how do you rate President Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address? Pass, fail, or I've stopped caring. You can go to our uh, MoneyWeb link on Twitter X, also on our LinkedIn page, and uh, I'll bring you the results on Monday. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. We are then up as a podcast. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.